This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for MakeASkillJack.com, and you can find more writing by me at HittingAJack.com. My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at SteveRosePhD.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. So, Steve, today, what are we talking about? Just getting way more animated than I need to. <laughs> it's been a while. We need to bring the energy back. Where? What have you been up to? What have I? Since when? Oh, man. I've been living <laughs> in Toronto, I guess, doing that. I don't know. I don't really want to go into too much detail. It's not been... <laughs> the best of times, but I've been making a lot of friends, going out a lot, um, trying to establish a life here after moving here. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Mm-hmm. How about oh, you, Steve? Lord. What's been going on on that end? Um, well, I transitioned fully into my own business, which is uh, addiction counseling, mm-hmm. taking you- care of uh, uh, twin babies, uh, you know, the usual yeah, the usual thing that most people have to deal with all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you're you have three kids under four, I think, right? These, these yes. days, yes, yeah, it's got to be yeah. super lax, especially low stress. Switching to full time working for yourself in that situation. Oh yeah, <laughs> no volatility whatsoever. Perfectly stable. <laughs> Welcome to the club. I think we were talking about this the other day. Um, how uh, I've been in that kind of more entrepreneurial space for years, and how it's. Not fun. It's a lot more stressful. Constant sinking feeling. You're like, oh God, I have to get this, I have to make this work. If I don't make this work, then everything's going to fall apart. Although granted your stakes are higher because I was solo. Oh yeah. Yes. My stakes are high. Yes. So what are we talking about today? I mean, you asked me that. Yeah. I asked you that because you're the one that that wants to spearhead this one. This is your domain, which I'll just, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I'll say it's uh, behavioral addiction, right? Yes. Which is, we're going to, behavioral addiction. Yeah. We're going to have to distinguish that between addiction and dependency. If you want to start with that. Right. So behavioral addiction is also known as process addiction Hmm. and it's an addiction that is based on doing a behavior rather than ingesting a substance. So normally when we think of addiction, uh, you're, you're taking something like a, like a pill or you're injecting something, you're drinking, you're smoking something. Uh, so you're, you're taking an exogenous substance into your body. Um, process addictions are simply doing a behavior like gambling, social media, shopping, uh, that provokes dopamine in your brain in similar ways uh, to actually taking substances, but no substances are actually needed. Hmm. So what about substances that are less addictive, that are not chemically addictive, but like seem to present as, um, I guess, addictions or dependency? Uh, So I guess what I'm talking, I'm confusing the words myself (laughs) because we use them kind of interchangeably. But like I'm Mm -hmm. thinking more about specifically marijuana, which I think is not chemically, you can't build a chemical dependence, can you? Well, you, you can, yes. So really any substance you can gain a chemical dependence on. Uh, the, the one that is least chemical dependent are things like psychedelics. Hmm. And cannabis is kind of on the borderline. So it's halfway kind of in that psychedelic space, but also uh, it, it does create dependence for some people. And there are uh, actually physical withdrawals for some people, not everyone. Um, but, um, have you ever heard of anyone getting physical withdrawals in your space? 
yeah, no, I, I mean, okay, you act like because I use it that, that I must be in like the space of like these huge stoners. I remember during the pandemic, you asked me what my daily usage was and you asked me to measure in grams. And I was like, uh, a decimal, like something really small, I guess. Uh, so no, I don't know anybody that is chemically dependent, but then again, you won't really know because a lot of them will be active users and they right. won't bring it up. Like I didn't realize that you yeah. have such a huge dependency on caffeine, right? Like an absurd oh, amount. Major, major dependency. Yeah. If I don't have it, I feel like I have the flu. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, cause I told you I had to go off of it for a bit just to like reach baseline again. And you're like, I couldn't do that. I get no withdrawal effects from any of these things, thankfully. Wow. Um, Good for you. I mean, it's just like you're sluggish, but that's going to be right. whatever. Um, but right. uh, back right. to the question. No, I don't know anybody that's chemically dependent. I, I, but again, like I said, it's it's hard to say because I think pot is one of those things where, yeah, some people, I think it's kind of rare, likely, that they're chemically dependent, but they use it so much. I think it's more of an emotional addiction, like they're using it to deal with a situation, often like yeah. poverty or something along those lines. Um, but that I yeah. think I would probably put into the category that we're currently talking about behavioral addiction, right? Right, right. Yeah. So distinguishing dependency uh, from addiction, addiction classifies physical dependency in addition to psychological uh, dependency. So physical would be like the you take a chemical away from your body, like alcohol, you know, that's been uh, suppressing uh, certain neurotransmitters. And now you're, you have an imbalance when you remove the alcohol and, and you feel like jittery, for example, on alcohol, you remove cannabis, uh, irritability is, is one of the, the common things. And when you remove things like gambling, there also can be uh, a physical withdrawal as well. What? Uh, if yeah, It's very strange, I know. Yeah, because that's purely behavioral. You're not ingesting anything, but it is like placebos or nocebos. It's still causing a chemical reaction and stuff, which is why exactly long ago I was like, What's the difference between drugs and food? Like you're still changing your biochemistry, right? Exactly. So when you are gambling, you're jacking up your dopamine levels beyond what is just what should be normal in everyday life. And so everyday life in comparison to gambling, especially when you're doing it several hours a day or thinking about it all day, everyday life feels a lot more dull and Mm. mundane. And uh, you remove gambling and you have to kind of readjust your dopamine levels so that everyday life actually feels rewarding again because things just don't feel as rewarding. And so your motivation is affected, your mood is affected, things just seem dull so it can can mimic kind of a, a depressed mood. And so there's an actual dopaminergic effect of stopping the behavior similar to substances. So do you find there's a lot of overlap between gamblers and like adrenaline junkies, people who like extreme sports, or do they often, if they wean off of gambling, do they tend to go to stuff? Because like we have... I think most people acknowledge these days that we have a problem with dopamine spikes with our phones constantly. Like, do they tend to substitute something else in place of that often? Or like, how does that tend to go? Yeah, it could. Uh, but I guess I'll classify two different types of gambling addiction. First, uh, which... Actually, I wanted to, before we get into that, I do want to ask, like, what, we will say we're addicted to things all the time. Like, oh, I'm so addicted yeah. to crackers. Like, they're so delicious. But like, I used to use it a little more freewheeling like that. But I think there are extra steps that are required to define addiction, right? Like, for instance, um, continuing after negative outcomes are prevalent, right? So let's first define addiction, then move past that, because I think we kind of use it right. casually. Yeah, so we'll define addiction, and then we'll kind of go to the subset, which is process addiction. The actual only recognized behavioral addiction or process addiction is gambling. 
in the DSM. Yep. That's the only official one in the DSM. Doesn't mean that the others don't exist. It just means they haven't met the threshold of the amount of research and experience needed to have it uh, put into the DSM. Um, the other one that is in a subsection of the DSM is internet and gaming disorder. So uh, they do lay out some tentative criteria for that, but it does need some more research. The only official one that can be diagnosed is gambling addiction. On a note there, we can't really address this right now. It's a much bigger topic, but I don't know if you've followed that the DSM is kind of, not kind of, it's out of favor. It's not being used anymore by certain bodies that are psych recognized. So I'm, I'm not sure what they're doing these days, but you're like, you're pointing out that the DSM is still a thing we kind of go off. Right, I'm actually generally. really surprised that porn addiction isn't there or like phone addiction because really, yeah. porn is a lot more biochemical. Like you're actually entering a different state and getting a physical release. So I would assume that could be as addictive as gambling for a lot of people, especially since it's right in your pocket and like the thing you need to do your addiction is on you at all times. Right. So, right. I'm also surprised by that. And as you say it, I'm actually wondering if maybe politics has some reason to do with why gambling gets that preference, because it is something that uh, is largely distributed by the government and profited off of by the government. Uh, and so it, it, the government provides a lot of free services for gambling. And in those free services, there needs to be uh, some kind of diagnostic criteria. And so the politics of how gambling addiction is like a really important area to the government. It's something they treat and put money into. Well, you're talking about Canadian government, right? Because like we Canadian have a lot government. of different rules, like like the profits from the gambling goes to helping people with problems, which then we track that data. Is that what you mean? Like the research is yes. using that data? Okay. And also in the U.S., there are resources put to uh, gambling addiction as well. And so it's it's something that I, I feel like got preferential treatment when these other forms of addiction would make perfect sense to be in the DSM as well. Right. Anyway, we're getting off track again. Let's go. Let's define what addiction is. Right. I assume you pulled that up now. Right. Yes. So generally speaking, you can say there's four C's in addiction. Uh, it's compulsion, craving, consequences, and control. Uh, compulsive would be kind of that uh, impulsivity component. Uh, craving would be that kind of urge or desire to engage in this. The consequences would be that this has a negative impact on your life. And then the control would be continued use despite those negative consequences. Can you distinguish them a bit more clearly? Because compulsion and control seem very related to me. Like compulsion, craving, and control all seem to have overlap in my mind. Right, they they do. They, they pretty much have, have overlap. And so I guess the more simple way to say it would be continued use despite negative consequences. Okay, that's the, the clearest, easiest way to say it, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people say, oh, I'm so addicted to X, Y, and Z. You know, it's kind of the way, like the way people talk about OCD. It's like, oh, I'm so OCD, mm -hmm. I organized my desk, you know. like. But when it comes to actual criteria, this, this is more than just really liking something and kind of just craving it. It's actually the inability to control your usage despite the consequences that are adding up. So things like cannabis, for example, it's less harmful than other drugs like cocaine, but I guess you'd have to look at it. Does it cross into addiction? Is it actually causing harm? And there's a threshold for harm. There could be minor harms of you just a little bit more lethargic and, and less motivated because I guess we can always be better. And so yeah. there's not, it's not like you're just a little bit slower and it harmed your perfectly productive day. So we're not doing like a perfectionistic definition of harm where you're like not perfectly optimized at all times, <laughs> but uh, harm as in like... I think it's like 
I mean, we're, we're basically going to the psych realm where it's like, it's not yeah. a disorder unless it's negatively affecting the way your life functions. Exactly. Like, sure, right, you might be a right. little bit OCD and like organizing your desk, but you still get your work done and it's not interfering with mm-hmm. your relationships. Right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when, it, when it comes to these harms, yeah, relationships are uh, an important one where you, you start to, I guess, neglect those relationships or not showing up in the way that you would like to in terms of your values. Your work might be affected uh, in terms of... Uh, is, edge cases like my i um i was with a chinese girl for a long time she was born and raised in china and they're all drugs are bad all illegal drugs are equally bad if you're doing heroin and meth versus like marijuana they're all equally damaging and equally addictive and pretty much the exact same so we obviously didn't do it when i was living in china because it's very illegal there but then we Mm -hmm. came back to canada and it was legal or like it was just becoming legal it's gray area at that time i think maybe And no, it was legal then. And she was vehement against me using it, but I didn't agree with her take on that because that's a ridiculous black and white stance on it. So then the question is relationship. Yeah. I mean, there was some tension there, but like we lived in China. So it was only when we were in Canada that she would have an issue with it. But that's a question that's like, if I don't agree, like, I don't agree, like, I guess it was kind of damaging the relationship somewhat, but I didn't agree with her take or her reasoning. So I don't know similarly, I guess you could say like, I want to go to the gym and she hated going to the gym and I'm on her and like it's damaging our relationship that she's not like, for instance, like that's, that's not real, but like, let's just suppose, um, Mm -hmm. do you think that that's qualifying? If you're like, you're not actually having like by any objective measure, you're not having a use problem. It's just your spouse, which is you were to be completely abstinent of this thing. Mm -hmm. And you don't agree with that. You think casual use is fine. Yeah. That's, that's a gray area. It's super, it's super contextual harm. And I've talked to people who, are uh, like this, whose relationship is being affected by an addiction. But if they were single and they could just do whatever they want, they'd be perfectly happy and their life would be generally together. But it's the discrepancy of values and perspectives Mm. on the substance or behavior that makes the, the harm very contextual. And I guess it would come down to how much strain does it put on that relationship? And is this something you that you value and you want to stay in? So if you're like, no, I'm going to do it anyway, and that person is just like sobbing every day, and you're like, <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, then it might just be a bad match, I guess. But like, you are in effect choosing a behavior or substance over your over relationship. Right. Yeah. So it, co- it would classify as addiction. It was yeah. just like a, they just get a little annoyed, and they're like, oh, why do you always have to do that? You know, it's it's relative like how much harm i guess yeah because i've met like some couples where one partner sees looking at like usually the woman uh and hetero couples at least they see porn as cheating and so then if the husband or male partner i guess does indulge in that then i guess you could classify that as addiction because he's damaging his relationship yeah but it's like it's also an ultimatum right it's kind of controlling behavior to some degree like this thing that most people regard as pretty benign and you're not doing it to problematic levels they demand abstinence so uh, i mean like i guess if we go into that area then very religious couples might have more addiction just because they would be more easily damaging the relationship by crossing any boundary by having any at all maybe yes i would say so yeah it really becomes a choice of is this the right fit no okay and it really comes down to that because I have talked to many people where that exact situation was true. Where they're like, this is not unreasonable. I'm not like abusing this thing. I'm just using it casually. And my partner wants mm-hmm. abstinence. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, you, you got to make a choice. Yeah. You, you got to say, okay, I'm going to 
value the relationship and choose that. Or compromise. Like maybe we limit it to like once a month or once every two weeks, I'm allowed to do this with my friends. Well, kind of exactly. you, you come to some agreement. I guess the key is that it's like, okay, we're both okay with this and there's no kind of deception. Yeah. Hiding and deceptive behaviors, I think would make it more right. readily there. Cause you're like actively <laughs> like refuting their trust, right. knowingly um, breaking the trust by hiding it. Right. And you weren't doing that with cannabis, from my understanding. You weren't like sneaking around the corner and getting a few puffs and like. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't think it was that far. I wouldn't like throw it in her face, but I also wouldn't. If she asked right. me what I was doing, I wouldn't lie. Right. So that's that's like the the relativity of harm. It's context dependent and it's intensity dependent of how much harm. Hmm. Um, and so that's very much a gray area and something I always try to figure out. Where is this coming from? Is, is this harm that you're perceiving or someone else is perceiving? How do you get on the same page or go a different way? You know, and so that's, those are very common types of conversation in addiction. Okay. So um, I guess we've, we've defined, <laughs> broadly defined yes. addiction and defined some of these edge cases. Is there right. more meat on the bone you wanted to get to there? Yes. So behavioral addiction. Yes. As I said before, gambling is the only recognized one by the DSM, of course, and it has actual criteria that define it. Okay. And so we can use this definition. It has nine criteria. So how many do you need? So usually DSM says it's like, these are all the traits. You need at least this many of this list. Yes. So gambling addiction has nine criteria. Yeah. You need to identify with at least four of them within the last 12 months. Mm. And so here they are escalating excitement. So you need, uh, you find yourself needing to gamble with more money to get the same level of excitement. And so it's like using any other drug where you have to use more of it over time because there's a tolerance. So it's equivalent to, I guess, tolerance. Withdrawal symptoms. So it's actually part of the definition that when you stop, you feel irritable, similar to uh, missing your morning coffee or, or any other drug where you just don't feel right without it. Third criteria would be loss of control. So you've tried to stop or cut back with repeated unsuccessful attempts. Hmm. So that's the control piece of you really trying to stop. You say, this is the last time. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done. And then you do it again. So you recognize that there's a, a problem. You recognize that there's harm being done. And you're like, I'm not doing this. But then you're like, one more time. One more time. Rationalization comes in. The fourth criteria would be preoccupation. So you find yourself thinking about it uh, even when you're not doing it. Like you're, you're at work, you're driving, you're just kind of thinking about it. Uh, you can't get gambling out of your head. You're thinking about the losses. How am I going to get it back? You may be preoccupied in the form where you're actually doing it. Uh, on your phone, during family dinners, during work, you just have a little like a poker table or slot machine on your phone. You just like click the button and you're just kind of doing it all the time. Some people gamble when they're driving. So it's a nice. very, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more common than you think. It's a, a very preoccupying behavior where you should be doing something else, but you just, you're gambling. Yeah. You're surprised by that one. I mean, it shouldn't be that surprising, but I guess for me, I try to limit anything at all while driving. Even I try to right. shut off my notifications because like that can even be distracting. Yes, right. Fifth criteria would be gambling to escape. Uh, you uh, feel stressed out or upset and you use it to escape from that. Similar to alcohol or painkillers where you, you just use it to get relief from something. So this is also, it's not just a thrill uh, thing, a thrill activity. It's an escape activity as well for people. I do remember, maybe this is going to be tied in, but I remember you saying that when you worked at the casino and you had to approach people, 
Um, you could tell if they were there for like casual users or somebody that may have a problem by asking them, are you having any fun? Like, are you having fun today? And they'd be like, I wish. Or like, if they <laughs> if they give you like a negative answer, like basically, no, I'm not having fun. What, what am I doing here? I'm not having fun. Uh, then oh, yeah. they would probably be somebody that might be on the path towards problems or if not already there. Yeah. So when I actually worked in the casino doing problem gambling prevention, just talking to people who are actively gambling, it would often just ask them, are you having fun? How are you doing? If you got like, yeah, great night. It's like people just out with friends, you know, just casually gambling. But if they're, if they're saying something like fun, well, this was never fun or some kind of like a disgruntled answer of like, sure. You know, you know that maybe that's kind of a problem case there. So super com- simple question, but uh, a nice way to kind of gauge where that person's at. Because if you're there for fun and you lose... Uh, the person would most likely say, ah, didn't have any luck today. You know, it's all good. I still having fun. If the person's really losing and they're in gambling addiction, it's like their whole mood is affected by that. Uh, It really, it's like a roller coaster of emotions. You are on a high if you're winning. If you catch them in a good moment, which is kind of rare in gambling, they'll actually say, great, I'm having so much fun. And it'll be kind of an excessively mm. good answer. Not so the mood is very much determined by this thing. It's it's controlling exactly. how much they're having fun. Yeah, they're they're either like on top of the world, feel invincible, like I'm having a great time, could be addiction, or it's like the worst thing in the world, and it could be addiction. Most people are just there for leisure, or kind of somewhere in the middle. They're like, oh yeah, it's good night, whatever. Yeah, they lost all the money they came to play with, but it's not their life is yeah. not revolving around that. They're there just yeah. for. With the friends or whatever. Okay. Yeah. It's not the primary focus. So back to the criteria here. Number six now, I think, right? Yeah. Number six would be uh, chasing losses. Have you ever heard of the concept of chasing losses? Probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, like you've lost time. money and so you're like, I got to win that back. Right. Basically. Yeah. When you chase your losses, it's um, very kind of dopaminergic behavior. So dopamine is connected to this drive or pursuit of something. It's something that is very common in uh, like cocaine where you just it's like well more it's never enough Mm. the high is just never satisfying i guess sexual activity before completion it's just the striving or wanting it's chasing chasing the dragon kind of thing that's more substances i guess but basically you're looking for a certain outcome to scratch that itch and it's very difficult i guess very frustrating because like the itch they want to scratch is winning right right they want to win big at least when to get out of the hole and then they have house money as they call it. Yeah. And, and it's never enough. And that's the thing with addiction is it's never enough. There's never enough cocaine to make you feel satisfied and happy. It's not like, Oh, I hit the threshold. I'm now satisfied. It just doesn't happen that way. And same with gambling addiction. You don't get to a point where it's like, Oh, I'm satisfied. I got my hundred thousand dollar win. I'm done. In gambling addiction, it's like, that provokes even more of a desire to chase. And, and and so you chase the thrill of the win and it's never enough, which leads to losses. And then you chase the losses because you, now you have loss aversion. The thought that I had this before, now I want to get it back. And that's very motivating. And so chasing the losses usually happens after chasing the wins. So all, all roads lead to gambling more, basically. Because if you're winning, you want to mm-hmm. win more. If you're losing, you want to win it back. All roads lead to gambling more. The solution is gambling. We all gotta, we all have to gamble then basically is what <laughs> it sounds like. Yes. So I guess the, to the question of how do you profit off of gambling when you have an addiction? 
you can't. Yeah. Like when we started this off air, we were talking about stopping gambling. Like, how do I stop gambling? Like, I can't because I haven't started. I'm not yeah. somebody that enjoys gambling at all. <laughs> but I guess that's yeah. the only way to the only way to win, as I think your ad campaigns are kind of saying these days. Yeah, I just wrote something as the what's the best way to win at online gambling? Don't gamble at all. <laughs> Ooh, he's got it. He's got the pearls of wisdom. But really, it's unless you're doing it very casually and you place like one bet or a few bets and you come out ahead and you're like super risk averse and you're like never doing that again which yeah that was that was my experience of gambling i went in with however much money and it's like within five minutes gone you're like okay well that was the least enjoyable way i could spend that money i'm not doing this again but sometimes if people get an early big win so your experience Mm. in gambling is very negative yeah, if for some reason, like I walked in and I won like ten thousand dollars, it's like whoa, gambling yeah. is great, right? Yeah. And so we, a lot of people don't know that experience of having an early big win, and so their experience of gambling is like, oh, it's just terrible. I just wasted my money. But do you think that's a huge correlation that like people that do end up having a problem end up because that's a learned thing? Like my learned response yes. was that it's punishing. Whereas yes. if I come in and it's rewarding, like if. I'm curious why they don't do that. Like, give you a bunch of small wins when you first start with because they have those tracking cards, right? Yeah, they, it's illegal to because ah, uh, like that would be <laughs> heavily addictive. That would basically immediately yes. it's like a pusher. Like, take yes. this crack. Like, you have to smoke it in front of me. Yeah, that's illegal. Yeah, it's going to hook them really fast. Yes, it, yes. If if the gambling industry was allowed to, they would probably give people early big wins by default, which would hook them. Mm. But you can't determine the outcome that way. It has to be random. I remember I, I debated you on this <laughs> in a previous episode, and I was I fact checked it and I was like way wrong. So I was like, eh, okay, don't don't challenge Steve on these things. Is this his yes, expertise? <laughs> by definition, uh, regulations in Canada and the U.S. in most countries uh, is that gambling outcomes have to be random. Mm. They can't be predetermined then so they can't hook you by giving you a, a big win by default they can give you other things like sign up for the rewards card and you get a free uh, you know hundred dollar free play you know they do that and so there's other ways that they can give positive experiences but determining the outcome is not one so i guess <laughs> you learn that gambling is rewarding or a way to make quick money well, by no. actually one thing i'm thinking here is couldn't they, using that, they're giving you a bonus, right? But they could say the bonus gets triggered in the system to be given after you lose so many times because then it's effectively a win, isn't it? Because they're giving you cash. You didn't actually win. The system didn't say you won, but the system does say, wow, you're losing. Here's a hundred bucks. Like that's still a reward, right? They don't do that with new players. They actually do that with really uh, uh, big spenders. Huh. So people who are in like kind of top tier levels. Like whales? Of- as they're called. I guess that's the colloquial term. I mean, there's a scene in Casino. If you have, if, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Casino. Uh, but there's a guy that comes in. He's a, a whale. He's a big spender, millions of dollars. He ends up winning and he's about to get on his plane. But then they purposefully do something to make his stay extended by like 12 hours just to get yes. him back in the casino to win it back. So it's kind of like that situation. Exactly. So once you cross a certain threshold in Caesars, there's different tiers and the highest one would be seven star. And so when you're in that category, if you do the math, you're spending equivalent to 100000 a year uh, gambling. To be a seven star gambler? Yeah, you're gambling with a lot more money than that, mm-hmm. near a million, but uh, you are spending roughly 100000 a year. By spending, you mean losing, giving losing. them? Okay. Spending, yes, giving them. It generally works out to that. It could be more, it could be less, depending on what happens. Um, so once you're at that level, they actually assign you a personal host 
Uh, and so the, the host will walk around with an iPad and they get like a ping notification. This person has been here this long. They're losing this amount. Go give them a reward. And so the, the host will go over, uh, ask how they're doing, kind of just, you know, ask if they need anything, give them a little bonus reward. Uh, and so there are mechanisms like that that actually facilitate uh, more spending among the big spenders. I guess I'm just wondering why they don't do it. Because like, if it's illegal to get people to have big wins quickly and early, or at least medium-sized wins, you would think that they would just get around that by being like, here's a little bonus gift, here's $100, just keep gambling. If you lost a bunch of times, here's a, you still kind of win just by being here. I'm surprised they don't do that. But I guess it makes more sense because like, either you get a, lot, a little bit of money from a lot of people or a lot of money from small amounts of people. Yeah, they don't focus too heavily on the marketing for for new signups. They do in terms of here's free money, go yeah. play with it. And that's enough to get people in the door. They really put the focus on the big spenders. Yeah. And and so I guess when it comes to learning an addiction, that's how, that's how addiction works. It's a learned behavior, but not learned in a rational way. Like I learned from this textbook that I... I mean, most, I think a lot of behaviors are going to be emotion-based, right? Like if you did something learning. and then you got like an emotional slap from it, yes. then you're going to be like, don't do that thing. Yes. And I guess I have a question. Uh, do you think that I mean, it's probably all sorts, but do you think that like high earners or people that are very high in success and have larger purses to work with, do you think they are more likely to get a gambling addiction? Because as one phrase I've heard was, if you want to make somebody miserable, give them nothing they want or give them everything they want. And people that are extremely successful may find their life to be less and less stimulating because they've got everything they want. It's just basically kind of watching the scorecard go up every year with their salary or whatever. It doesn't materially change their life. Do you think that they might be more primed to go for gambling because it's going to actually give them the thrill that their life may lack? Not necessarily more likely. That's just they're more likely to have that reason that's driving their gambling. Hmm. Uh, people with low income are highly motivated to gamble to make up for the low income. To escape to the reality and also hopefully materially escape their situation, right? Like, I guess the dream would be to get enough money to buy a house or something, right? Yeah, probably the most common answer I get was I lost my job or I'm on a fixed income and I thought that this might be a way to make up some extra money. That's one of the most common reasons uh, why people really get into it. And it's often a result of it actually working early on. Uh, so they have an early big win. Yeah. So they start the gambling, early big win happens. And now their brain has learned an emotional level. This works. This is the way that I can make up extra money. I can beat the system. Belief in kind of having more control than is actually uh, They're necessary. the specialist boy that is like, I can beat the odds. I'm better than those suckers. Yeah. Yes. And everyone thinks they're above average and yeah. believes that they're kind of selected. And if it does happen to you, you have an early big win, you kind of are an abnormality in many ways because the default is is, is not yeah. having that. So it, it reinforces like, oh, look, it happened. I'm lucky. I know how to do this. This will actually work. And uh, then it, it just becomes very enticing. So your experience with gambling is a learned, this is not fun. This is a waste of money. If you had an early big win, maybe you wouldn't think that way. So people are like, oh, I would never do that. It couldn't happen to me. Well, try having an early big win when you just lost your job. Maybe it'll be a little bit more enticing than you yeah, thought. That's true. This is why I thought, okay, like we're talking, the casino you worked at was Windsor specifically, which was Caesars, right? 
Uh, yes. And I remember when they were like, we're, we're opening a Caesars here. And I was like, oh, great. Like I automatically thought this was terrible because it was like an economically depressed area. There was a lot of unemployment. People were not doing well. The industries are kind of like shriveling up a bit at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, we're opening casino to make more like it'd be great for jobs. And it's like, I don't know. I actually have any idea how much the people there actually earn, but I imagine it's probably minimum wage for the most part. Uh, it's a lot of factory jobs. So it's more than more than that. But no, no, no. I mean, at the casino specifically. Oh, it's uh, slightly above that. Yeah, which, okay, great. But it's like most places you can't really survive very easily in cities on minimum wage. So like even marginally above, it's not a living wage a lot of the time. Mm. And then you're in a casino. So the chances of you just walking out, I mean, maybe because you work there, you might see that it's not great, but you could still be tempted to think that you're special. But it just seemed Mm -hmm. like overall, I mean, I know our system changes it a bit where the government takes a lot of the profits and like whatever they skim off of it. I don't remember how much, but then they reinvest that to try to like fight problem gambling. But it's still like, Mm. it seems like an unwise decision to put in an economically depressed area, doesn't it? Do you have a stance on this? Yeah. Okay. It's predatory. Yeah. It's like, oh, the government's going to make more tax revenue by extracting wealth from poor people who are out of work and going to be Mm -hmm. even in worse situations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the industry is is terrible. It's very predatory. <laughs> oh, yes. we should probably talk a little bit, if not a lot, about sports betting specifically. Yes, sports betting specifically, which is the gateway to online gambling. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think it started with fantasy sports, right? Where you have your team and you're kind of competing with your friends. And there's no money involved. It's just bragging rights. But then yeah. you can easily start actually putting money on it. I think that's where it started. Like, Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about the progression if you know it very well? Yeah, it started with fantasy sports. Yeah. And, and that became just an opening where it's like, yeah, harmless activity, fun with friends. Everyone kind of got involved in that. You kind of remember maybe, what, five years ago or something where that was kind of... Yeah. A very common topic of conversation. People try to get me into it. And I've never been a sports person. So they're like, oh, but you'll right. enjoy it when you got this going on. And I was like, right. I don't right. want to. <laughs> yeah. that. So that was a common thing that was happening in the industry was trying to push for that. I guess FanDuel was was a big part of that. And uh, DraftKings. So that transition. Are you marketing for them? You're just like triggering anybody in the audience who's listening and like, oh, yeah, that thing I really like. It's painting a picture of it as a very malevolent uh, entity, let's just say. Wait, what? What is are talking about it or these entities? They are malevolent, but I think yes. they were painting themselves as benign and perfectly fine. They were. So they initially said, oh, it's just fun with friends, you know, fantasy sports, whatever. But then they got into trying to work with, um, you know, lobbying the government, opening up regulations so that it was no longer just family, fantasy sports. It was actual sports betting single sports betting to be specific because before this you were able to do what they call parlay bets which is you would go to the convenience store you would take out a bet of like a series of like you have to win at various different games in order to win you'd have to guess right and the outcomes of various different games in order to win so it was far less addictive because and it's also to, less convenient yeah yeah you had to go to a store which a convenience store ironically but you had to actually you had leave, to leave your, your house, house yeah it's not as convenient as pulling something out of your pocket. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you leave your house, go to the store, do a parlay bet. So you had to wait for like all these different games to finish to see if you won anything. So it was, it didn't have that real chasing, like, you know, slot machine kind of behavior to it. But single sports betting is different because the game starts and finishes in the same night. And so now the time between the bet and the win is shortened. That's more addictive. 
Oh, so these ones, are like the parlay betting, you'd have to do it days ahead or before the game started or what? Yeah, you were betting on the outcome of various different games. And mm-hmm. so you'd have to do that before. You have to wait for all of these to finish. There's just a longer time period. The more you shorten the gap between the bet and the outcome, the more addictive it is. So that's why slot machines are one of the most addictive things because the bet and the outcome are super quick. They're like, right. I mean, that's for any learned behavior, actually. That's from thinking fast and slow. They were talking about how like if you do something and immediately get feedback for it, it, you can correct much faster. Whereas like learning to drive, say, a cruise ship is much more difficult because the time between control and bad or positive outcomes is much slower because it's much slower to respond. Exactly. And, And you can use that in parenting. So if your child does something right, you reward it immediately. If they do something wrong, you punish it. And immediately you don't just like let it oh earlier earlier today when you did that you're gonna get punished. by the way this thing you did hours ago yeah no i remember um this is uh, this was on my psych undergrad don't do this uh but it just like look back and laugh at how stupid it was it's like mm-hmm. i was living with roommates and the dishes weren't being done and so whenever i would walk around and have like a small amount of like swedish fish or like swedish berries <laughs> and so because like everyone loves those in the house at least and right. so whenever i caught them doing like cleaning behaviors i would be like hey you want some Swedish fish? I just pretend I was just casually eating them and give it to them. <laughs> you were positively reinforcing your roommates. Yeah, I was trying to facilitate a, a more happy and living experience because like cleaning behaviors are the number one thing that I think are going to cause conflicts in a house. Would you do it like right after they did it? I do it while like, they were doing it. Oh, perfect. So that's what I'm talking about. It's having the reward very quickly to the behavior. Yeah. So if the behavior is pressing a button, slot machines, just like a couple seconds, you got the you got the outcome. So as uh, parlay bets transitioned uh, into single sports betting, three legalities open up for that, still opening up uh, for that in various states, and that became more addictive. Now it goes one step further. It wasn't enough to be able to do a single sports bet. They wanted two things. Put it in your pocket and allow you to bet on every aspect of the game live. So the regulation opened up that now these apps can be on your phone and you can do single sports betting conveniently. You don't have to go somewhere to do a single sports bet. You can just do it on your phone. And when the game's running... You can actually bet on things that are happening live in the game. Like, is this person going to pass to this person or get a really goal? It's all it's and like yards run and like who, how many times are going to pass to this particular player? Coin toss. What? It's called live betting. So it makes the experience way more addictive because now you're in the action. You place the bet, you see the outcome, you can place a new bet. So you can be betting the whole time you're watching sports now rather than just placing it before the game. Wait, for the coin toss though, they don't have the house edge then. It actually is 50-50 at that point. I think the payout would be less. I don't know how it works. I mean, they're going to have like actuarial people basically going in and making it. This is why I found like advertising was kind of one of the more evil applications of psychology and this is like the most evil application of psychology. Yes. And you Using math and stuff to like, what is the optimal amount of reward we can give and the least amount of money we can give them to yes. get them the most hooked? I would think the coin toss pays out similar to roulette, black and red. So it's 50-50. Probably slightly less. It's got to be because there's the zero and double zero. It looks yeah. like it's 50-50 black and red. It tricks you into yeah. thinking that, but there's actually two green ones in there. So it reduces the odds to, you know, a few percent less. So let's say you bet $100 on a coin toss to make it easy and you win, maybe you get $95. That would create a house edge. Right. So it's not quite double. I don't know exactly what the odds are, but that would be an example of how they would profit no matter what. Yeah. I don't know if this is 
tangentially related. It's to do with gambling overall and casinos. We're talking about roulette. Did you ever hear about the uh, statistician who went to a particular casino and they took data that just tracks the outcomes of these three roulette tables and were able then to get their own edge because nothing is perfectly balanced. Everything has a slight oh, bias. Physics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, physics, yeah, and stats. So they saw that each table had a certain bias towards these things. They just kept betting on those particular outcomes and they were beating the house. And the house couldn't figure out what they were doing. They're not cheating as far as they knew. Although I, I'm surprised they let them collect all the data, but they couldn't figure out how they were doing it. And so what they ultimately did was they just took the tables and just swapped them around. So you didn't know which table was which. So then your edge is gone because you would have to figure out which table is which again. And wow. uh, yeah, but they did successfully win, uh, like, I think, millions by doing wow. this. Interesting. So obviously casinos are very hawkish about like watching yes. anybody doing anything, keeping track of anything. Oh, yeah, of course. Cameras are everywhere. Yeah, it's a little authoritarian country. Oh, yeah. It's its own economy in a casino. Like, people go there for their pots and pans. Like, what? Yeah, it's strange. It's it, like it's like its own world. They get they give away free gifts uh, to people who are certain, I guess, status, mm. meaning how much they're spending. And uh, so they'll invite you and say, come How much they're losing? I think we should just rephrase that, not use their terminology. Depending on how much you lose, they'll give you lose. free gifts. Yes, yes, there we go. Uh, they say, come between this time and this time, we got free gifts. They'll usually align it with like uh, like slow times to, to kind of fill fill the gaps. So it's like like a Wednesday afternoon. It's like, come and get your free pots and pans, you know, and, they, and you don't have to do anything. No strings attached. You just come and pick it up and leave. But they track everything. So if you pick it up and leave, it's like they the merit points against anymore. you. So yeah. they, they, they stop promoting it to you. Yeah okay that's interesting yeah i mean i was gonna say like basically all cooperate sorry all corporations in their current almost all there are some notable exceptions but almost all corporations are basically authoritarian countries like they for some reason i was like okay well all society was like okay it's progress we're moving away from authoritarianism towards democratization and getting people says and stuff but then for some reason corporations which is the thing that drives most of society were like no 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 that can't be democratized we can't have people having equal say or stock in the company we have to have those authoritarian and like we're kind of societally moving back in that direction as a result it seems but that's, yes. that's not a here nor there that's a way off tangent yes yes we, we got here by uh, talking about chasing losses oh, is that? oh did we even um, finish the, the we list didn't finish the, <laughs> okay. we, we didn't finish the list so that was the mischievous detour of how fantasy sports got one foot in the door. Mm-hmm. There's another step further. So here's the progression. So it started as fantasy sports. It then turned into single sports betting, where you can bet on a single game. It then turned into live betting, where you can bet on in-game activities. Then here's how it became even more addictive than that. They attached online casinos to these apps so that you can go in, play slot machines, roulette while you're waiting for the outcomes like while you're waiting for your bet to come back you're just then hitting the slot machine again and again just hitting the blackjack so you can go in there whenever you want so you could see the progression of how it started as like oh it's just this innocent experience with friends to okay now you can bet on a game to now you can bet on everything pretty much within this game to now you know what if you're if you're still bored during commercials go play these blackjack games in, in slots. You know, you a way you to see. pass the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then while you're, you're watching commercials, there's gambling ads in the background. What? So, I just got to wonder, what was the speed at which this happened? Like how much time from, I guess it's been like five years, basically. 
Uh, relatively speaking, yeah. So I don't know the exact dates of how this all opened up. And it differs by state, but... Yeah. I mean, I'm going to pull us back again to capitalism because this is the closest microcosm we can see between industry and government. Like government's supposed to be there to regulate industry to protect the public mm-hmm. so they don't become completely yep. extractive. However, when a corporation starts getting enough money, especially when it's basically free money based on behavioral problems, like psychological yep. flaws in how we are structured as a species, they can then just reinvest that money into buying politicians and changing policy because like the average yep. person isn't fighting back against that. Yep. This is just like the, the speed run towards exactly what happens with basically all industry that's not properly regulated and moves towards monopolization, right? Like, because these casinos basically got so much money basically for free. Mm-hmm. Whether well, I mean, investment up front, fine, whatever you want to say, if you want to be nitpicky and defend that industry. But then they immediately reinvest it back. And we used to have more protections about gambling mm-hmm. um, advertising. But the ironic part, let's point this out too in Canada, you can't advertise your services. There was some sort of like flaw that would stop yes. gambling treatment. Oh, it was treatment centers because they were also extractive in their own way. Yes. So it's very uh, interesting. This is specific to the US and in Canada, but you know, the sponsored re- Facebook results. Yeah. You can't advertise addiction services because there are predatory addiction services as well. But the car wash kind of, I mean, they shouldn't really make a distinction between like individual counselors and those car wash um, treatment centers where you go in, you're removed from all temptation, and then you're thrown back into the exact same temptation situation you were in before. Yeah, but it's it's just a little bit interesting how uh, there's so many regulations around that, but gambling ads are running rampant. Like, I'm so, like, at this point, I keep getting them, and I have ad blockers and stuff. They just show up on random apps, and I keep reporting them as abusive. I report them as, like, inappropriate or abusive or whatever I can. Yeah, good. And that's the thing with how sports has changed too. Neither of us actually watch sports, but the experience of watching sports has completely changed. The commentary during games is about the odds. That's are talking to about me. that. Yeah, the whole commentary is all relatively gambling focused. There's like ticker kind of like here's you know in the NFL, yeah, Chirons, the thing that's like scrolling on the bottom. I guess, yeah, whatever you call it. Yeah, news chirons. So these things are always being shown to you. People are talking about it during the commercials. They're normalizing it, basically, and making it constantly on your mind. Normalizing it. So basically, if you have have gambling addiction, you can't watch sports then, basically, especially if you are... No. Like, you can't even just enjoy a sport because if you do at all, it's going to be very triggering, yeah. That's the number one thing. When somebody's gambling addiction is heavily oriented towards sports, we often talk about uh, taking a break from it. And it doesn't have to necessarily be forever, at least a month to kind of get some space from it, maybe forever, but uh, at least getting some space from it so that you kind of get that dopamine detox, get some kind of uh, stability in your recovery, develop other things to replace that activity, kind of get some traction in your recovery, and then potentially reintroduce sports from a fan perspective. And some people can do that after a little bit. But initially, yeah, we talk about uh, getting some space uh, from actually watching sports. I guess it's just the whole way that like money will pervert pretty much anything to make it a problem because like that's why like i don't know we can go into a lot of stuff like gdp and all that stuff like how we measure success of a country is not how we should because it's like i think even i always go back to like all these things because it's all interconnected but it's like the wealth of nations by adam smith his take was basically a nation is as wealthy as the average individual can indulge in the wealth of that nation the access Mm -hmm. to these things so over time, most of the countries that were seen as very prosperous, I think a lot of my immigrant friends in Canada and the U.S. are very disappointed when they come here, being sold this one dream and then showing up and it's not that anymore. 
that yep. they've been chipped away. So we actually aren't as wealthy as we say based on GDP, like, oh, your GDP is doing great, which is good for the stock market. But like the average person is kind of feeling the pinch more and more. And all of this is because it's just going to be more and more extractive, right? And gambling yes. is just like, a big sign. It's weird that we've already talked about porn and we've talked about gambling, which are the two sins that are very much harped on by uh, religions, right? That they really go against those things. And I guess in the past, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, fuddy duddies. But it's like, yeah, mm, yeah. they're actually, no, I mean, especially maybe, unlimited access. Maybe there's something to that. I mean, back in the day, it was like you had to literally buy like a porn mag or go to like a specific theater or like go to this place where you have to like publicly admit that you're doing this thing in front of somebody. But now it's like all these things are now in our pockets. Like this level access, I think, makes it where I'm actually finding myself agreeing with those old timey yes. religion um, perspectives. Right. And access is one of the biggest things we talk about when it comes to addiction. When it comes to gambling addiction, it's access to cash. Cash is the drug. Yeah. Access to money, access to credit, access. That's huge. So yeah. you're not just looking at blocking access to the actual app or the ability to bet, but actually blocking access to your cash, having somebody handle it for you, making it less accessible, not having credit cards. These are major ways to deal with gambling addiction. Interesting. I, I, this makes me think of a kink I've heard of where it's like control kink, where like the person will give their partner control over these things, like <laughs> not to control their gambling, but maybe, maybe that's how it starts. That's why I came to mind where they're like, I can't control my own bank account, but my mistress or master, I don't know, uh, would don't, be able to. <laughs> I don't think that's how people experience it. It's a road in, it's an inroad <laughs> towards that potentially. <laughs> Maybe that's their detox. Cause like, that's why I think like, I don't know, porn, probably sex slash porn gambling seem like the worst addictions because you can't really escape them. And to be healthy in mm -hmm. society, you have to have that, like you should have access to these things in a more reasoned approach. Like food. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that too. I guess I just never seen that many people with like life-destroying food addictions. Right, right. It can happen. Shopping. Yeah. I guess we don't technically need shopping. We could live on a farm and just make our own things. But yeah. it's just so ingrained in part it's, of it. That's what I mean. Like, life. I guess with gambling, especially with the ease of access from home, I guess you can, you can right. buy from home too, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Gambling just seems like it's, you're going to be chasing more and more. I don't feel like shopping, despite all of us doing it, and it was a lot of people doing like shopping therapy, as they call it, mm -hmm. retail therapy, it doesn't seem to be something that's, again, life-destroying. Because you can't, you can't shop away your house accidentally. Like gambling, you can, I don't know how they do it because like they have to have some sort of right to that property. But just like in movies and stuff, they'll be like, oh, I, I lost my mom's house. And it's like, how did you do that? You don't own your mom's house. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how. I guess they would just promise it and don't actually have access. And then they are now. Oh, I know how they would do it. Okay. Do you want to say that on air or is it not something you want to like promote? No, it's easy. Their uh, parents would bail them out by remortgaging the house uh -huh. and they would spend that money gambling and then the parents can't afford the house. So mm. that's how it would happen. Okay. Uh, that sucks. That's pretty <laughs> terrible. Um, yeah. Cause like these kind of addictions in general, it's like as a parent, it's very difficult to know what to do if they don't want to get better. Right. And I think there's a lot of times in these cycles where they will promise that they're going to get better if you only bail them out this one time or one more time. Any advice for parents dealing with this? Don't lend money to someone with a gambling addiction. Any addiction? Pretty much any addiction, but especially gambling addiction. And what you would do instead is take control of the finances. I know that they're less likely to want to agree to that. It's the standard way to do it. It's not bailing them out. So that would be the advice. Hmm. All right. On to the next, I think we got like my four left. Three left. So lying about gambling is another criteria. It's pretty straightforward. You're just 
hiding it. Or dishonesty by omission. You know, they didn't ask. I don't say it. Right. And then you have that annoying dynamic where they're like, did you gamble? No, I didn't gamble. Of course I'm not. What are you talking about? And then they have to actively lie. Or you like you have to be a nag, basically, to constantly be like, did you gamble? Yeah. So that's fun. Lying. So if you see yourself lying, might be an indicator. Number eight, risking significant relationships or opportunities, career, relationships. More than just like, oh, my partner just doesn't like gambling and I enjoy it for recreation. It's kind of not like the cannabis example we talked about earlier. Mm. It's more like uh, you are actually isolating from friends and family and just really can put strain, not just financial strain, but you are actually isolated or moody, just not wanting to go out or engage with people. You wear a mask of like, everything's fine, which subtly disconnects you from the people in your life because when everything's terrible and not fine, but you have to put on the mask that everything is fine. You're being inauthentic. Yeah, you feel inauthentic, disconnected. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like You can't connect with people if you're being inauthentic because you're not letting them connect with you. Right. And it's a highly isolating experience to wear this mask all the time, which is just this heaviness. And when our social needs are not met, we feel even worse. Makes sense to try to gamble to feel better or to fix the problem. And so it's this kind of spiraling effect of like, everything's fine when it's not. I feel disconnected and isolated. And now I feel connected with people when I'm doing this gambling thing. And there's like gambling groups. There's a lot of like chat groups people are part of. Literally to talk to someone last week who said, Every male in his 20s gambles. Yeah, you and did that's, that's that, his yeah. experience. You know, and that's, this is not like a fact. This is the experience of a lot of people. That and vaping. Everyone in their peer circle does it in vaping, yeah. you said too, yeah. Those things seem to be like heavily pushed these days. Like we just found our new tobacco basically, well, especially obviously directly with vaping. But yeah, it's because like this is what's going to happen basically. You're predatory on developing minds basically and getting them to be like lifelong addicts, hopefully from yeah. their perspective. Like that's why the tobacco industry for the longest time was targeting specifically teens because they knew if you got out of your teens, you wouldn't be likely to pick it up. But if you did pick it up, you'd be unlikely to stop. Yes. And this is the biggest demographic that's being affected right now is young men. No shit. And when, when you think of gambling, you, you think of casinos, older people retired playing slot machines. That's not what it is now. It's all younger men who found their way into it, usually through sports betting and are doing it in a very social way, which you know often starts out very social. That's even worse because then you have to like abandon your friend group when you stop then. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing is I'm talking to people who are trying to stop gambling, but They have to make a choice. Is being a part of their friend group worth it? Because everyone's talking about it. They're watching sports. When sports is on, now they're talking about odds. They're talking about gambling. The gambling ads are there. So it's always a balance between, okay, you get connection when you're with these friends, but you also get triggers. And so you have to think, okay, who do I spend time with? What things do I go to? What things don't I go to? What friends do I tell? And then therefore they stop talking about it with me. What other things can I do with friends? So you have to be very creative and proactive when it comes to the whole social part of this trigger. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of addiction overall, right? Or yeah, even cults, I guess, are a weird form of addiction in a way. Because I've met people that had to escape them where it's like their entire social circle is in line with this thing. You've built your life maybe not built it around that thing, but it kind of became central among your peer group. And then when you try to stop, you're a fuddy-duddy or you're a non-believer or whatever it is. Yeah, It's the most reinforcing things. We're social creatures, right? So we didn't basically have to be like, okay, I'm going to be either completely alone and have no friends and don't really know how to, especially in Western society where it's a lot more isolating, or I continue on in this group and probably relapse or don't get out of it at all. 
Yeah, it really is the new, I guess, smoking back, you know, when everyone smoked. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, why don't you smoke? You know, I don't, maybe in the 50s or something. The thing um, you have to actually justify, like these days, um, even these, I mean, like less drinking so. These yeah, days. drinking. If you don't drink, like, well, you, you don't, did you not drink? It's like, no, I'm just not you drinking. have a problem? Yeah, I went to a singles event and they were like, oh, what are you drinking? I'm like, water. And they're like, is there a reason you're not drinking? I mean, it's a singles event, so they're trying to suss out whether I'm, I have a problem or not, I guess, to discriminate, I assume. But I'm like, no, I just, well, I didn't want to spend the money on it because it's just not worth it for me. And also, I, I'd rather just meet somebody while sober at times. And who would have thought that gambling would also fit in the same category of like smoking or drinking where it was so normalized that you'd have to justify not doing it? Well, because uh, yeah. it's like everyone's doing it around you. Why aren't you doing it? Well, OK, the thing is, I was going to point this out earlier when you mentioned that you and I both don't watch sports. It seems that seems alien, super absurd to a lot of people I've mentioned it to, especially as right. a guy. Um, maybe less so these days because like nerd culture is more prominent. But people I don't watch even video game stuff. I play video games, but I don't like watching people play video games. And it's just I've told people that before and they say what do you do with your time? Like, how do you, what do you do? Kind of like, I guess if you say yeah, you don't exactly. own a TV, like I know some people that don't. Yeah. It's like, so what do your evenings look like? I'm just curious. Cause like most people unwind by watching a show by themselves or something. Yeah. And, and these, these peer groups, they're often gambling together. So they're watching the game. They're, they're doing their own betting on their phones. Uh, one person I talked to actually, they would put up a, a big like spinning wheel, like a gambling wheel from one of these uh, platforms onto the screen. And they'd spend the evening just hitting the button and like cheering for like this outcome. So they'd all put a little bit of money into it and they'd just spend the evening watching this wheel spin. <laughs> and so that was kind of... That's literally their, their central focus of their guests together. We're going to gamble together on this thing yeah. that has no no skill whatsoever. Yeah. Actually, in China, there was a kind of... There's a thing you can do on WeChat. You can... this red packets are a thing you get in holidays from older people. If you're unmarried, older people will give you money in red packets is what they're called. And so on the app you can have like a group chat and you can all put in a small amount of money or one person can just put in like i don't know 100 quai so like 20 bucks canadian or i guess like 15 17 dollars us and then you all open it you all get your own version but it randomly assigns and it shows you who won and how much they got so you can basically play with your friends just put up some money you will get some back some will get like a decimal of a, a yuan and then the other ones will get like i don't know like 80 you on so it's like there is a big winner and you get to see who it is and then you can like have bragging rights with your friends i could see that becoming problematic yeah that's kind of like uh like shopping addiction and I'll, uh, the parallels would be Eric Fromm, a psychoanalyst kind of in the frankfurt school a humanistic uh, psychologist he talks about these two orientations to being having versus being a having orientation would be like i need to acquire things like consumer culture you know to feel like i'm enough to feel good enough to develop an identity around having things and so like playing sports or actually watching sports, people have this having orientation of this is my team. I identify with this group. We won. And and so it's kind of a having orientation versus a being orientation, which is more about kind of enjoying experiences and, and connecting with people and having passions. He's saying that consumer culture has facilitated this having orientation um, through advertising where we're made to feel like we're not enough unless we are we have this thing or we are participating in this thing and so when a lot of people's motivation to gamble is that they've had a, a big win and now they have a bunch of cash where they can say drinks on me everyone let's go or bring the girlfriend to the mall buy her some diamond rings and you know get these fancy things and so it really boosts one's ego 
And this, it really is highly addictive in the sense, especially if you feel like you are not enough or, or lacking self-confidence. And this solved the problem by giving you the ability to now buy things for people or have things. It really is addictive in, in that perspective as well. Yeah. Our last guest in the last episode, I was trying to remember what he talked about. There's desire as lack and desire as fullness. Do you know these concepts? I only came across them from him. Right. Desire as lack would be, I'm not enough and I need to bolster my identity by buying things or having things or showing that I'm I'm good enough. I'm good enough because I have these objects. It's external yeah, it never to me. works. No, no, no. It's that's what our whole system is based off of. That's what marketing is largely based off of. And And why like monks don't buy a lot. (laughs) Exactly. Can I read a quote from this that he so fun fact I just found out because I was trying to find the term. He actually has his entire script of his video uh, online posted here. So I'm just going to read from his script. This is these are him quoting a book. So I'm quoting him, quoting a book. The book is called The Fullness of Desire by Lydda Maxwell. And she's a political mm-hmm. a professor of political science, gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Boston University. Quote is, the dominant conception of happiness in the United States is unabashedly acquisitive. So like acquiring stuff. It involves marriage or at least being coupled, probably children, probably home ownership, and definitely easy and ongoing consumption. This idea of bourgeois happiness is powerfully connected, as Kate Soper argues, to capitalism. It is also connected to patriarchy and white supremacy. Oh, we're going in deep, I guess. <laughs> hmm. So I'm just going to jump to where he says desire is lack. Desire is lack teaches people that they need particular things, endless consumption, or structures, bourgeois marriage, or feelings, heteronormative love, which may never fully arrive to be happy. In contrast, desire as fullness teaches people that they already have the capacity for pleasure in themselves and in this world, and thus gives critical distance from capitalist heteronormative institutions that had once seemed necessary to happiness. Exactly. That's it. And that is how consumer culture, shopping addiction, and, and gambling addiction preys on that. This sense that we are not enough unless we have these particular things. Is all addiction, you think? Is all addiction what? Do you think all addiction is based in this same desire as lack? Like you are not enough, you're in this pain, so you're going to take these substances. To, like, because you don't have love or you don't have enough right. stuff or you're like, you're really beaten down because you're just a yeah. worthless human being. Like, I was just thinking, yeah, exactly. Like, right now, I'm in a situation where it's like income is precarious. And yes. like, it seems like I may potentially have a very solid job with the government if they can actually finally mm-hmm. get, get around to giving it to me. Uh, I've been applying for over a year. It's just how slow our government works. But once you're in, you're in. And if I get that, then like all my problems are basically solved, mainly because most of my life has been like self-development and working on like being happy in these ways. And mm-hmm. part of me questions, like, I do think that most of my, like I just said, my, all my problems will be solved. Not all of them. I mean, I'll, I'll get new problems. The life is about getting better problems, but like having no food versus having too much food, obviously a better problem to have. Yes. Um, but I guess I'm partially wondering, like, is it going to actually deliver these things? I don't know. I've never been in that position to know that having like a stable long-term and almost unlosable job has never been right. a thing that's been on the radar. So I'm just curious, like you, I guess you came from a similar background of like precarity and then you got stability. Did you, what was the kind right. of, how did you find that progression to be? Uh, You can relax a little bit, I guess. I think that's the thing. You don't have to feel guilty relaxing and enjoying yourself and doing recreational things uh, when you have that stability. When you don't have that stability, you have this internalized capitalism where you just feel guilty relaxing. We have an episode on internalized capitalism. But you feel guilty relaxing because you could always be doing more. And when you have that stable kind of predictable income, you're like, I'm good. Yeah, you can just be. just be, yeah. So then I guess that's where we went with like what I said earlier, of like getting everything you want. Supposing you have enough income, you can save all these things. Some people will be even more miserable because 
that's, I guess that's the fear I'm wrangling with. I don't think it's going to be a huge concern, but it's like, what if I get this job and I'm equally unhappy as I currently am? Then I don't think that would be true for you, but we'll see. I don't think it will because like, I have had stability and well, I know I haven't actually not, not ongoing stability. It's always been like a timer in the back yeah. of my head. So yeah. if it was ongoing stability, then yeah, it does seem like a dream to be able to just go to the park on the weekend and lay on the grass and not be like, I should, what am I doing here? Like, why am I doing this? Like a lot of my ha- hobbies have like fallen to the wayside because yeah. they're not profitable. Right. Oh, similar. It's like, go with like for a drive. Like, why would I do that? I spend money like, on gas, like what? going around. Oof. What? You know? So yeah, it really does change so things. Us millennials killing all these industries. You know, we should really just spend more, even though we're not like a joke I keep making is like, Spend more, no pay more, just spend more. Like, that's just how our system is currently. They're like, yeah. why is the economy yeah. sl- struggling? It's like, because you were not able to buy anymore. Like, everything is way too extractive. Yes, everything is very extractive. And I think to the question you asked earlier about does all addiction come from a desire as lack? I would say so. And um, Gabor Mate has a really good quote. He says, ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so, uh, deep emotional pain of trauma, you could even say boredom. Uh, feeling like you are not enough are all kind of coming from I'm lacking this. Yeah. And this is a short term solution that has a long term cost. And so that's what addiction Just is. Just like Carl Rogers, that book on becoming a human being, what's it called? On becoming a person. Yes. Yeah. Something along those lines. It's his collection of writings. And he's famous for knowing, he's famous for basically putting forward unconditional positive regard. So when you're in a counseling setting, regardless of who you're talking to, you regard them as a worthwhile person that has a full life internal life and you're just kind of giving them respect as they probably don't get in most areas. What I found interesting about his takes is that he actually did in those writings talk about experimentation of different approaches and how his take was supported people naturally move towards actualization. So that's basically desire as fullness where you're like, Mm -hmm. I have everything I need. I have emotional support. Mm -hmm. I don't need to use these band-aid solutions like cocaine or whatever to get a rush because I already feel like I'm a worthwhile person. And that's something that's why I feel like it's actually hard to say how it would work out if we were to provide, say, counseling services and these sorts of things from an early age and to everybody unequivocally, unequivocally, whatever, I'm not going to say that word, (laughs) screwed unequivalent yeah yeah it's not easy so (laughs) so if we did that i feel like on the one hand we wouldn't have those like narcissistic well we would still have some because i think it's going to be a natural thing in genetics but we're going to have less people that are feeling they need to continue to get more which would actually probably hurt the economy but also would help the economy in some ways because there's a lot of creative pursuits that i would like to do but because there's a lot of stress and pressure to do those things where you're like i'm not enough i can't do this you're having to like come to a place of emotional stability where you feel like i'm doing this because I want to, it's an enjoyable thing. Like I want to make music or whatever, but um, you have to contend with all these, like, why am I doing this? It's a waste of time. A lot of anxiety about performing well. What will other people think of me? Will I be famous from this? Instead of just doing it for the love of the art. Right. You mentioned narcissism. Baumeister argues that narcissism is addiction to validation. Or esteem, I think you said before too, right? Right. Which is basically, you're getting your esteem from external validation. And so uh, you are addicted to people looking at you favorably. And so you try as hard as possible to look uh, fancy or impressive or intelligent so that you get praise or validation or acceptance 
because you feel like you're not enough. And then I guess talking down to people and treating them, like especially people you regard as less than yourself as a narcissist, treating them badly, I guess would give you a kick in that way because you're like, I am better than this person. Maybe because mm. like it's a way of like inducing esteem in yourself by treating somebody else like they're lesser, you think? It's a social comparison orientation where you gain a sense of self-esteem and feeling like you're enough by being better than people, but it doesn't work. Obviously. and uh, But it's an attempt to say, well, if I'm at the top of the pyramid, I'll be happy. I'll be happy because we'd be better than everyone. You get there. Well, and as they say, it's lonely at the top. I was going to say, I was like, Thomas Joyner is going to insert that there. Although his theory is a bit different, right? It's about how these, the traits that you need to get to the top kind of make you alienate yourself from people by not being able to connect anymore. Is that the theory, thesis of it? You do, but you start to isolate because as you're trying to constantly become better than everyone around you, first off, that's very off-putting and people just don't like that. But secondly, you have to kind of protect yourself. And so engaging with people too deeply or too much is vulnerability. So you become very selective in the way you present yourself. What do you mean protect yourself from what though? From being found out uh, as not being enough. And so if you are too vulnerable in your interactions with people, there's a fear that they're going to find out that I'm not enough. And so you have to put on a mask and that mask is the thing that disconnects you from people, as we talked about before. Yeah, yeah, that's the main thing I keep coming back to is like, I think when I talk to people that are naturally really good at social skills, like they just naturally have charisma and they can walk into a room and they came from a very emotionally supportive family. When I tell them some of the ways that like I've analyzed and like worked on improving my social skills, they see it as super alien and bizarre. It's like, why would you have to think? Just be normal, man. Just be normal. But ironically, I find that the more I learn about these things and the more I like just practice getting out there and meeting people, like you'll... you'll You'll get better as you do it, but like you can see, okay, like when I do this sort of behavior, like complaining, for instance, it's going to be off-putting to people. So don't do that. Mm-hmm. But I find that the more I understand these things, and the more I just kind of internalize those skills, the more I find I'm able to just present genuinely. Know that I won't mm-hmm. be like, even if they do reject me, it's more about them than it is about me, which allows you to be that much. Weirdly, it makes you much more magnetic because they mm-hmm. know who you are, they know what you're about, and they know they can trust what you're presenting as being genuine. And then you don't have to put on an eye. That's why it's like, it's, it's weird catch 22. Cause like as somebody, if you're somebody that struggles with social skills, it can feel like you're putting on a performance to be able to interact. It's a lot of work to present properly, but yeah. that's because you often feel you have to present in a specific way or whatever. But ironically, um, by being able to be as genuine as possible and just like own up to your feelings and like see that you're like you are enough you end up being able to connect with people better it's just kind of like catch 22 chinese finger trap where like you have to let go to be able to connect but it's hard to let go when you're not connecting this very much relates to addiction they say the opposite of addiction is not necessarily sobriety it's connection and when you're in active addiction there's there's a lot of secrecy a lot of shame where I, I have to kind of show that everything's okay because I don't want people to find out and so you you feel disconnected and as you come into recovery a big process is coming in back into connection with people talking to them about the things that you fear that they're not going to handle well but when you actually do talk about it you are often surprised that they are receiving it well and supporting you. And so a huge major part of addiction is coming back into connection. Um, and, and, and the authenticity, the honesty, the values are a big part of that. This sounds like the secret sauce for AA or anything similar, because yeah. it's a group yeah. that you can be completely genuine yes. with. You can talk about the yes. darkest moments and not be rejected. Exactly. This is also yes. why I find when people are like, I don't need therapy. I have friends. It's like your friends can be very judgmental and very much have invested interests or actively cause you harm because of their perspectives, uh, which may be just as dysfunctional as yours or more. So that's why you need, like, that's why I think AA is kind of good, but it's also like a yeah. kind of weirdly religious thing at times, but they are useful because you can get a new social circle to connect, right? 
Yeah, they would say that they're spiritual, not religious, but it obviously has a lot of Christian uh, cultural connotations in some of the ways they do things. Uh, but they would say that they're not uh, aligned with any particular denomination or, or, or religion. But so that's the, that's the secret sauce when it comes to 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, is that ability to come out of isolation, out of shame and into connection where you can relate to the experiences of people that have been through similar things. You feel like you are not alone in this because when, when you're in active addiction, you feel like I am uniquely flawed and alone. Nobody else is like this. It's impossible. And so that's shame. As you come into peer support groups like those, uh, you start to realize maybe that's not true. And you start to hear other stories of people who um, have opened up to friends and family and it was received well. And so you start to question, well, maybe I can do that too. This other person did that. It worked. And then so maybe you get the courage to go a step further, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's exactly it. And I think, I mean, I guess I'm going to reference this. You asked me what I was doing earlier and I kind of like alluded to it. I, I guess the main thing I've been doing since here is like working for myself, looking for work, working um, whatever jobs I can basically do, like odds and ends. And the main focus has been being hypersocial. <laughs> like it's people seem surprised when I'm like, I basically only stay in when my plans fall through. Like I have plans basically every day. So then like each week I might stay in only one or two times a, a night. Mm -hmm. uh, I do it very cheaply by just like basically not buying too much when I go out and just doing that because I didn't have a social circle here except for w the one that was created with my ex in the city. So it's like, there's a lot of negative mm -hmm. not support. And then like a lot of bad reminders I didn't want to think about. And so now I've just been like running around trying to meet people and kind of hoping that just things will come together. Because my theory, it wasn't doing this to, to find work but like it seems like I've been able to connect my friends with possible opportunities and they've done similar to me and so like that's why I'm talking about that perspective of connection and genuineness because it's like yes. my main focus for the past few months has been just throwing myself out there into various situations where I may only know the one person that's bringing me just to yeah. connect with people which is uh, yeah. at least to it's like a you were saying like it seems like it's just fun it's like it can be but it's also a little bit stressful because you're like having to deal with like what if I'm rejected what if people hate me yeah. what if it just doesn't yeah. land and it's also a kind of it's a random opportunity generator, good and bad, because like you can end up in really bizarre situations at times. Right, right. And connection is the best medicine. So it's like you've been using that to overcome the kind of the depressing effects of being isolated. And so you chose the anxiety of putting yourself into an uncomfortable social situation with the benefit long term of building connection, and which is kind of snowballed. Here's the thing that I kind of wrangle with is like, they say that maybe you're just keeping like this is what I would criticize some people of who you are aware of, of just throwing themselves into some situation to distract themselves from the work they need to be doing, oh, uh, like yes. throwing themselves into, into, say, work to just be doing that, even if like it's not actually helping you just kind of sweeping the problems under the rug. So part of me wondered, am I being hypersocial in this way? to avoid contemplating these things? And I mean, when you're alone, you still have like some more struggles, but like, I guess it's maybe different because I'm actually finding emotional support and connection and uh, people that matter. So I don't know. What do you, what do you take on this? Like, am I possibly just doing that? You could do the same behavior, but it, it depends on where it comes from that matters. So someone can use hypersociality as a way to escape from emotional pain or other things that they would not focus on, like, like uh, procrastinating because they don't want to uh, apply to jobs, for example. And so they, they're using uh, sociability as distraction and avoidance coping, which is similar to addiction. Uh, addiction is fundamentally uh, avoidance coping. So uh, you can be looking on the surface like you're doing the same thing, but I would have to ask you some more questions and say, where's this coming from? And, and usually I, I would, I would 
phrase it in terms of if I don't connect with a lot of people, then and for you, what like what's the first thing that comes to mind? If I don't connect with a lot of people, then then I'll be isolated in a city and have very few opportunities for anything to go. Like basically, my life will be in stasis, and I'll be just stuck in like a depressive pit by myself. And that's realistic. (laughs) So if if you answered the question of if I don't connect with people, then I'll have to face the harsh reality of applying to jobs. Then it'll tell me that it's kind of an avoidance um, versus building. I I mean, it's kind of like that's tied into it. Not that I'm avoiding applying to jobs, but it's also that like if you look at the stats, most jobs are not filled by blind application. You need somebody to give you a a referral. And while I wasn't meeting people for that purpose – um, it is a side benefit that I've met a bunch of people that are like white collar and they have internal right. application portals that you can use and that they basically, because they know, like, and trust me, they will put their neck out and say, okay, I'll, I'll internally use your application so you have a better odds of getting an interview or something. Right. And that's very practical. You're coming at this from, from a very realistic and practical meeting social needs. Actually networking leads to better opportunities. Uh, so it's not avoidance coping. Yeah. If I were to to have a conversation with someone who says something like, if I don't connect with a lot of people and get their approval, I will not feel like I'm enough. And, you know, that's a very different thing. And I mean, so it's avoidance coping. Do from they actually say of, that though? Because like, I, they don't say those exact words, yeah. but they'll say something uh, more normal aligned with that. I mean, you can catch yourself in those moments where you're like, if I like needing validation from the opposite sex, for instance, especially as a man, mm-hmm. um, as a straight man, at least, because uh, that is something that's tied into, like I was debating or talking about why is it that women are more comfortable being single than men. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it for men is that our, our like what we're told a man is and should be is a, a one trait is being able to get women, get access to women's yep. bodies yep. Yep. without paying for it, obviously. So like then if you're not doing that, cause like that to me, it's like it, it may, I thought initially I was thinking sex drive may play a factor, which it probably does, but not the primary one, because I think for a lot of men, they feel less lesser if they don't have a woman in their life. Also, because our men's relationships tend to be a bit more shallow. They don't have these kinds of conversations we're currently having about like what they're going through, right? So um, anyway, that's that's all tangent. We, we still haven't finished the uh, DSM criteria. I think we have two left. No, one left. So financial financial desperation, pretty simple. You need bailouts, you rely on others, you're taking out credit, you're spending money you can't afford pretty much. That's That's the last criteria there. So I'm going to recap all of the criteria real quick. I'm going to try to like map these onto porn addiction just because like I'm curious how they do. So first one. So I'm going to, I'm going to list all of these and then you can see what you think afterward. So this is the criteria for gambling addiction, escalating excitement needs, withdrawal symptoms when you stop, the loss of control, preoccupation, gambling to escape, chasing losses, lying about gambling, significant relationship opportunities are being affected and uh, financial desperation. So if you identify with four of these over the last year, uh, it may qualify as a gambling disorder, according to the DSM. The only ones that stuck out to me that seem like they wouldn't map on easily to porn addiction or sex addiction. Um, And the only reason I'm harping on this one is because it feels like it's something that's also prevalent in society and could easily be uh, slotted in the same things would be chasing losses. I don't know what that would look like in terms of, um, porn addiction and the, f- the final one is like economic desperation or like financial problems mm-hmm. i don't feel like that's necessarily there but the rest it's like escalating needs constantly thinking about it doing behavioral things like not being able to stop when you see like it's damaging a relationship obviously uh preoccupation gamble uh escapism of course uh most of, like it seems like a good chunk of them could easily map onto that um and probably other yes. addictions as well but like 
Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else you wanted to cover for behavioral addiction? I guess the one thing I wanted to say is that what's particularly addictive about gambling is the intermittent reward structure. Random so reinforcement? What that is, yeah, it's random reinforcement where you never know where the next reward is going to come from or when it's going to happen. Uh, there's actually studies on this uh, with mice where if you uh, reward the mouse who presses a lever and gets a pellet every, you know, fifth lever push, it's not a, not addictive. It just becomes very predictable. It knows when it can get its food and they can walk away. If you reward it in an in a intermittent reward structure, so it's random, it just sits there and presses it all day. Until exhaustion, yeah. It, yeah. And so, and that's, that's what makes gambling addictive is that it has this unpredictable nature of the outcome. And so it produces a dopamine chase that was kind of facilitated, I guess, evolutionarily where dopamine teaches us that there's a scarce resource here and you're surprised by it because you've stumbled upon it. Okay. Remember where that is. Yeah. And it's kind of random. So you're walking through the wilderness and you stumble upon like a, a pile of berries and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that was there. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah. And it, it provokes you to keep doing that behavior. I'm thinking so actually highly motivating. Let's tie that into uh, employment because like that's like where we're at because i was just thinking when i was in china i worked night and day basically like 70 hours a week yeah. in all sorts of stuff i would be running my own business editing and then i would be having a day job so i'd leave my day job get in a cab to go to tutoring while editing on the way there editing on the way back editing when i got home and like all that's just making money hand over fist because yeah for me that's that's like suddenly I've reached abundance where like before it was random reinforcement. Like you don't know yep. freelancing, you don't know where the money's going to come from. Exactly. So now suddenly I get like an abundance. Like I have a, at that time, probably a, a relatively unhealthy relationship of just like all my hours are profitable um, because I didn't know where my next one would come from necessarily. Yes. And and so uh, social media addiction is like gambling addiction where uh, you get this intermittent reward structure in, in both producing content and consuming content. When you produce it, you get rewarded by likes and comments and, and uh, views. When you consume it, you're scrolling and you get like a randomly like super rewarding thing every once in a while. And so it's like a slot machine in that way. And so uh, intermittent reinforcement plays into social media addiction. And these apps are engineered to really serve up these randomly reinforcing moments in, in both the publishing of content, but also the consumption of content. Uh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Because yeah, there's like, TikTok is very much that. Yes, Where exactly. you swipe, it's just so passive. It's just basically having, it's kind of like yeah. Wally, if you've ever seen yeah. that, where like the people are just like, passively just watching this thing yeah um yeah and just uh, i it's kind of like how i back in the day i don't know why this reminds me of that but like back in the day where people would just be like fail like they would be able to disapprove of something if they just say the one word where i'm like <laughs> it's just the laziest way to disapprove of something and like you didn't add anything you didn't take any risks but you get this little hit of feeling better than somebody else by being able to say the word fail this is like in the early teens i think <laughs> and i guess it's kind of similar in tiktok you're just like pass or agree, or um, I guess Tinder, uh, a lot of these apps like yep. are yep. as addictive as possible and they don't want you to actually succeed. Yes. So intermittent reward is a major part of uh, behavioral slash process addiction. It comes with gambling addictions, social media addiction, video dating, addiction apps, dating apps, uh, video game addiction. Most of life yep. these days. Yeah, most of life is playing on this very addictive, evolutionarily-based dopaminergic process. I have to go right now, uh, so we'll just wrap it up. Yeah, that's the wrap-up. That's it. Thanks for that's tuning it. in. We'll talk to you next time. Follow us, review us anywhere you can on Spotify or on Apple. Give us reviews, please, because we never ask for it, and we need them because we need to grow at some point. Yeah, okay, we're not we enough, enough without them. Yeah.
this. Ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Enable our addiction. Yeah. Enable it, please. All right. Begging. All right. See you, Steve. Is that it? Are we starting now? Yeah, we're starting now.